from the Clinton Institute at University College Dublin. This is America Unfiltered with me, Liam Kennedy. A fresh, raw look at American politics, foreign policy, and media. Today, we're discussing race relations in modern America and how race can function in society. And to help us unpack all of that, we're lucky to be joined by Dr. Alison Page. Alison is an assistant professor with a joint appointment in the Humanities Institute and the Department of Communication and Theatre Arts at Old Dominion University in Virginia in the USA. And she has focused much of her work on race in areas such as the criminal justice system and how the media reproduces concepts about race. But this being the age of Trump, it was only right to begin our conversation by looking at how race relations have fared under the current occupant of the White House. President Trump actually discussed criminal justice reform in his most recent State of the Union address, and he praised his administration's efforts in passing the First Step Act, which has shortened the stays of prisoners and supports programs to prevent prisoners from reoffending. Take a listen. Our roaring economy has, for the first time ever, given many former prisoners the ability to get a great job and a fresh start. This second chance at life is made possible because we passed landmark criminal justice reform into law. Everybody said that criminal justice reform couldn't be done, but I got it done, and the people in this room got it done. So I began by asking Allison if we should be congratulating President Trump for his criminal justice reforms. You know, I think that this is typical Trump, where he I mean, this is such a ploy to get African-American voters. I think given the the kinds of recent concerns about his base not being sufficient for him to win re-election, there is this attempt, shall we say, to to court a, a more sort of diverse uh, coalition of, of, of voters. I, I think that the fact that he can claim this kind of success it speaks to not only the the narrowness of how he understands justice reform right but i mean that this is happening at the same time that you know families are separated and caged at the border right that i was just speaking to one of your colleagues at the discovery institute about you know the the ways in which after charlottesville he said there were many fine people on both sides right so he sort of incites and retweets and is clearly part of this very white supremacist um, kind of rise while at the same time saying, well, African-American unemployment is the lowest it's been. And, you know, all of these, I think very clearly just uh, ploys to to try to speak to a broader base of voters. But in general, I mean, I think that the prison industrial complex in the U.S., that the fact that mass incarceration, so it's been 10 years now since Michelle Alexander wrote the book, uh, The New Jim Crow. And so there's a a kind of reckoning again, like what has happened in that 10-year period and what do we still need to do? And also, um, you know, how is Trump, of course, a barrier to this, even as he's saying like, well, I'm I'm doing all, you know, it's, it's just, it feels like these shocking contradictions that unfortunately we're living with on a day-to-day basis in the U.S. now. So uh, Absolutely. You used a phrase there that I'm sure many <laughs> listeners are, are familiar with, but many won't be, and that's that's Jim Crow. Uh, 
It's a phrase that's used to usually refer to uh, a series of laws that prohibited um, black voting and mm -hmm. black enfranchisement mm -hmm. and uh, even damaged black social cohesion mm -hmm. in the southern states, particularly mm -hmm. in the border states, uh, from the 1860s through to really the 1960s, mm -hmm. almost mm -hmm. 100 years. Yes. But it was also something that was a way of allowing race to trump class time and again, yes, I think. Wasn't yes, that the case? Yes. President Lyndon Johnson said, with, with these laws <laughs> in place, it means that we always can pick the pocket of the white man because he thinks he's better than mm -hmm, the black man. Mm -hmm. um, didn't we get rid of all of that in the 1960s? Mm. Um, the trumping, uh, or, <laughs> mm. gosh, I shouldn't even say trumping. It's that, it's been ruined. Just <laughs> you can't help making that, that, yes. that, that reference. Um, <laughs> so that's part of what my work, that I think I try to, address in my work these questions of the ways in which I think cultural studies as, you know, an area of inquiry has often succumbed to this relegating race below class, right? And so when we think about capital and capitalism to think about, well, for, you know, first it's always about class and then sort of we'll add race on. And so I, I'm, I'm really in conversation with scholars who are having this understanding of, of racial capitalism, right? That there's no disentangling. And in particular, this idea that you, that you referenced, right, of using what scholars like David Rodiger have said, have termed the wages of whiteness, right, as a, a kind of divide and conquer strategy. Um, I mean, this has a really long history. And I think we're certainly seeing this play out today in terms of Trump's voters where, the base of his support. I mean, he has such, I want to be careful to note that he also has support from very wealthy folks too, right? That there's um, kind of pockets of support for him that actually shock people. Like the narrative is so much like, well, the white working class, the white working class, right? That this is kind of an unproblematized term. It's just sort of taken for a given that we know what that means, right? I think certainly there are really intense class dynamics with his base of support, particularly in the Midwest, in the U.S., in terms of these cities that have been really deindustrialized, that have been so affected by trade agreements like NAFTA, that Trump, I think, is very effective at rhetorically saying, you know, I'm, I hear this, I'm doing work to kind of undo. And of course, right, we know that he's ultimately bolstering this billionaire class. But I think he's very effective at sort of playing on this um, this racial resentment that he stirs through. I mean, in some ways very explicitly, but often through through the lens of class. Yeah, that that, that relationship is really complex, isn't it? And it's yes. been at the heart of so much of what we refer to as American culture for a very, very long time. Yes. And, and I think one of the things your, your, your writings is doing is really – beginning to sort of pull it apart and show us some of the ways in which that works and some mm -hmm. of the mechanisms of it. In listening to talk a little bit about Trump and how his base can be understood as a white base, mm -hmm. one of the things that struck me in, in listening, you know, and looking across the Atlantic of the United States in recent years, and maybe this is related to Trump's uh, sort of advent as president, mm -hmm. is that whiteness seems to become more visible somehow. Yes. What's going yes. on there? Yes. You know, I think that that's so interesting. Inter so part of what I'm really curious about in my own work is is racial formation and how specifically the racial formations of whiteness and blackness 
both intersect um, whiteness in particular, relying on this imagined blackness to constitute itself, but that how this shifts over time and how this is part of that media culture is part of constituting these formations. But this this also, I think, is is happening at this really kind of critical moment where as sort of a backlash to Obama, certainly in in part, but also I think so much of the rhetoric during the Obama years was about, uh, you know, we're in this post-race moment, this we're sort of beyond race, this this kind of fantasy of colorblindness. Of course, there were people contesting that narrative, but I think what you're saying is absolutely right, that Trump has given made it impossible in many ways to to hold on to that narrative and at the same time has also drawn attention to whiteness in a way that it often for so long had gone unmarked or uncommented upon as a racial category right and that i think in this era where there's so much fear that he sort of fuels about um you know the demise of white identity right Mm. that that um I think one thing I've been sort of tracking is um, all of these white supremacist movements, right? But that they're they're rebranding themselves to be about specifically to say like, well, no, this is just about the preservation of white identity, white culture. And so there is this interesting way that whiteness is being named there, but of course not in a critical capacity, right? That this is about fear and loss and sort of this nostalgia for this imagined past So I think that's happening in tandem with things like Black Lives Matter and the movement for black lives and where there is this um, attempt to build a sort of anti-racist common sense in the face of really overt racism now from from things, you know, like Charlottesville, right? That and of course, this has always existed, but I, I think you're so right that Trump has really sort of pulled the cover off of this. Yeah, that's an interesting way to think about it. Um, the black intellectual, uh, Tanishi Coates, uh, wrote a piece in The Atlantic, uh, which had a very telling title. It was quite simply, um, The First White President. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, it seems to go to the heart of what you're saying. Yes. That, of course, all but one of those presidents was white, but this yes. is the one who is explicitly white yes. and speaks for a name of whiteness. Yes. Yes. And that's part of what's changed. And that's part of the unveiling, isn't it? That's yes. partly what has happened. He sort of ripped back the veil here. Yes. Um, and we're seeing some real things that are quite uncomfortable, yeah? Yes, and authorized, you know, I, 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 there's a scholar I love, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who talks about how, you know, the state, you know, teaches people how to behave, right? And and I think this is so clear. I remember in the days after Trump won, um, oh my gosh, I so I was teaching at Hampshire College mm-hmm. at the time, which is a very small liberal arts college in Western Massachusetts. It has a very, how do I put this, a a unique pedagogical approach. So there's no grades. Students essentially do, it's it's like mini grad school and they work on a creative or um, scholarly project for their final year instead of taking classes. Um, It has a very kind of leftist reputation. And so I was in this environment when, uh, you know, Trump won and just the idea that I mean, my students were so afraid because of the ways that so in Western Mass, there's also a lot of kind of conservative pockets and folks, you know, feeling comfortable flying Confederate flags now. Right. Or or shouting things at gender non-normative students who were, you know, walking around town. Right. That um, at this very small level, this felt like a microcosm of what was happening in the kind of immediate aftermath of November 2016 that I, I 
I, I frankly do really worry about 2020. I mean, I think everyone I mm. am in kind of community with is worried. Well, let, let's think a bit about 2020. We're in the, we're <laughs> in the midst here of the primaries. The Democrats yes. are trying oh. to figure out who might get a shot at running against yes. President Trump. Um, just as a link back to what you began talking about, this really important area of criminal justice, if you look at the Democratic candidates, do you feel any of them have a really strong position on that mm-hmm. subject? Oh, gosh. It's so interesting because I think part of why Kamala Harris actually didn't end up doing well is because of her history, you know, as a prosecutor and this critique that folks had that, you know, you're um, kind of touting your leftist accolades now. But meanwhile, when you were, you know, in California, like this, you were essentially strengthening the carceral state. Oh, gosh, it's I think it's hard I in terms of the so much of the discourse, I think right now, I I feel trapped between choosing a candidate based on what I think about in terms of electability, but also voting for someone who I'd actually want. Right. Um, I guess Bernie Sanders probably would come closest, I think, to putting forward a vision or at least thinking through this related. I think he, he, he kind of succumbs to this problem Mm -hmm. of class over race. Right. And, and he's, I think since he ran in the intervening years between, you know, 2016 and now, he has been more educated about this and, and tries to center racial politics a bit more. But I would say, given his longstanding critique of capital, that he he would have the sort of best vision for this. But yeah, yeah. He, I, he certainly has put a lot of uh, messaging out there around that. Yes. Uh, probably yes. more than others, including yes. reading back prison sentences, ending cash bail. Uh, boosting public defenders, legalizing marijuana, banning private for profit prisons. It's quite a mm. it's quite a list. Yes. Uh, but on the other Sturney. hand, we're, we're we're told that Joe Biden is the is the candidate who has African American support. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Biden is now given what happened with Iowa. So actually, I'm from Iowa originally, um, so I feel like Iowa just Can you fix failed. That? <laughs> yeah, exactly. This this was like the pride moment for Iowa, our little claim to fame and. Yeah, I mean, I know that he had been kind of looking ahead to South Carolina. Like, let's just get through Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina is where I have this base of support. And NPR, the story, they had been interviewing black voters in South Carolina who said, well, if he's good enough for Obama, he's good enough for me. I think given his fourth place finish in Iowa, it really remains to be seen whether, like, if he's going to be able, I mean, depending on how it goes in New Hampshire, if he'll be able to even continue. I think that had been so interesting that he w- had been considered really like the lockdown candidate. And now I, it feels up for grabs in a way. So Absolutely. And in looking at the race to come, I mean, no pun intended, but yeah. how does race figure into it? Yes. Is it through criminal justice issues <laughs> or is it being figured in other ways that you think could actually be important when the vote comes in November? You know, I think there's a sense right now, or at least that I, I think, I'm feeling or that I'm sort of noticing within the the world I inhabit that there's just so there's it's almost like desperation, right? Like anybody who can beat Trump, anyone. I mean, I think that when Michael Bloomberg entered, it brought back this conversation like, wait, we need to be careful. Bloomberg hadn't at that point apologized for stop and frisk, right? Had done so much damage in New York. His, his policies in terms of policing and uh, the politics of incarceration, right, were horrific. And so I think that there will be once the nominee is 
pinned down. Essentially, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens. Then what kinds of conversations, what sort of issues are going to be central? I think right now, um, it almost it just feels like so much fear. Like, oh my gosh, he's going to win again. Impeachment didn't work out right the way that I think most people knew that, of course, the Senate was going to acquit him, but that the the fact that this is now happening right, you know, at this this particular juncture is just really Okay, look, I want to pick up some other aspects of your work, which I mean, again, are still I think, closely related to some of the things we're talking about around around race and capitalism. But you've written on something you call the prison industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Could you unpack that a little bit? Just sure. tell us a little bit about that. Yes, yeah. So this is uh, Mike Davis's term from the '90s that really was looking at essentially, and then of course Angela Davis took this up and really popularized this. But that the the ways that the prison system in the U.S. is so dependent that the economy is really dependent on incarceration, right? And and when we look at, in particular, local economies, right, in towns that are sort of centered on the prison, right, that that this this institution offers jobs, right, that these these folks are. Um, this is like the big kind of source of employment in in a town, and so the the fact that. I think by naming the system as such that this is this complex that, you know, akin to the military industrial complex, right? That there's literally an investment in incarcerating people and and that money is is being made off of this, right? And that it's also sustaining these places that don't have other sources of employment, right? That it, it, then it is this awful kind of trap. I mean, I think one example of that that we see was with SB 1070 in Arizona. This was probably... Now I don't want to give you the wrong date, but when that um, passed, that basically enabled people to um, the police in Arizona to sort of stop and question anyone suspected of being an undocumented immigrant. Um, that was in part written. This bill was written by a private prison company, right? So they have this investment in putting bodies into these spaces that they're building, right? That that right. they need to you know, to fill. So um, I think a lot of anti-prison and prison abolitionist work has really focused on preventing the the construction of new prisons, right? That um, there's a sense that if we can stop at that level, right, that that's, um, that's part of a, a, a sort of non-reformist reform, right? That that's not strengthening this overall apparatus, even as it's, of course, not ending incarceration to simply stop the building of a prison, right? But that it's um, it's at least not fueling this machine yeah, further. Right. So, but you're reading the prisons very much as a, as a commercialized space, as a capital yes, space. Yes, yes, Um And is the reform movement against that having traction? You know, I think, um, so I referenced Michelle Alexander's book. I think that she did such a service, and there were critiques of that book, I think, especially by people who are kind of further left, um, that it wasn't sort of like a prison abolitionist project. I think she has now said, like, she has come to see that, that you know, ending the prison overall is is, is really the, the kind of only way. But I think that book did such important work in, bringing attention to, and same with Ava DuVernay's uh, film 13th, right? That bringing attention to the the fact that, again, the carceral structures so much of life in the U.S. and that this is worse, that it is, of course, about race, right? That, that the number of black men in particular um, is exceeding that during um, the antebellum era, right? Who are incarcerated. And, and I think there was a general sort of sense of shock in kind of a mainstream way, right? Like mm. that, uh, I think of people who potentially don't 
follow these these kinds of issues that carefully, but who have a sense now like, oh, yeah, this is we do incarcerate people at this astronomical rate, right? And and even the idea of mass incarceration, right, sort of presumes that there's an adequate amount or that there's an, like, an okay level of, right? So I think that um, prison abolitionists are really challenging that idea in general, that this is not a system that is doing anything to, um, you know, not only to end violence, right, which it ostensibly claims, but um, that is, of course, reproducing you know, intense, intense levels of violence. And I get the sense too that when you're uh, writing about prison cultures, you're 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 writing about this as, a, in a sense, an extension <clears throat> of neoliberalism. Yes, in other words, yes. what we're seeing here are market values being extended into every yes. corner of American life. Yes. Um, but again, we like to unpack terms as we go along. So, just mm-hmm. in your usage of neoliberalism, you're referring to yeah. So. The yeah, it's funny. I talk about this all the time with my students. I give them kind of a dis, or a, a succinct definition that we're really as both an economic uh, philosophy, but also one that has impacts in terms of citizenship, right? Um, so I, I, I try to underscore the fact that it is this this imposition of market logic into every facet of life, even things that we presumed were sort of outside of capital, like family relationships or love. Right. Um, I think part of what this, my students are very able to see privatization as part of neoliberalism's project, right. The sort of gutting of public resources, um, for instance, in Chicago, they sold all of their parking spots, like the city sold all of their parking spots to a private company um, as a way to kind of make up this or to address the budget crisis. But of course, it's really short sighted, right, because then this private company is running everything. Um, and so this influx of cash that they're getting is, again, it's part of this ongoing sort of trimming away of of public goods. I think in terms of incarceration, uh, in this piece that I wrote with my former advisor, Laureolette, we were looking in particular at how um, both uh, neoliberalism was operating on a lot of levels in in this show 60 Days In that we look at. And in part, this looks like this imperative to self-brand or to kind of um, always be sort of remaking oneself over into this, this subject who could be appealing for a job, right? That in this age of precarity and scarcity, you have to be sort of scrappy and do whatever it takes. And so the contestants on this show um, where they go and they uh, are undercover prisoners in a facility for 60 days and the cameras roll, right? And you sort of see what happens. Um, a lot of them were looking for jobs in um, uh, in criminal justice. Right? So this was like, okay, if I get this, if I do this experience, this is going to really help me to get this job. So that's just one level that it's operating on, I would say, in the show. But in general, I will, I'll leave it there. No, that's okay. But you got into something I, I also wanted to ask you about. Maybe we'd um, one of the last things we can we can discuss a little bit, and that is how all of these interests, uh, which are complexly linked and 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 very significant today, of course, in in political terms, how does this work into the study of media? Because mm-hmm. much of what you do comes back to looking at particular media productions like TV yes. shows and so on. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I, it's funny. I kind of fell into media studies in a way. Um, I majored in piano performance in undergrad. So I, I really took a different <laughs> turn. But I my activist work in undergrad really informed what I ended up doing in graduate school. And 
I think in terms of part of why I love media studies is that it is this really, um, I think, productive way to get folks into having conversations that I really want them to be, you know, um, about race, for instance. So for my students in particular, they can take, we can take something that they're really familiar with that they use all the time, like their phones or um, social media or, or, you know, any kind of media form and use that as the starting point to have this conversation about things like the politics of representation or how race is produced through you know, predictive policing platforms or these, these algorithms that are used now to, to sort of ostensibly predict crime. Um, so I think that's, it's a really nice point of entry. And I'm also, I think I've been interested in both how media culture represents race, for example, but also how it's used to kind of teach people about race, to to construct race in a way sort of beyond the politics of representation, that it's media in this sense can be um, used to sort of manage population. So from a governmentality perspective, rather than just thinking about, um, which I think is really important, right? The politics of representation, of course, crucial, but how it's also working biopolitically as well. Dr. Allison Page is an assistant professor in communications at Old Dominion University in Virginia in the USA. I wrapped up our conversation by asking Allison to give me some recommendations for what we might watch on television on this side of the Atlantic to better understand the racial underpinnings of modern American politics. She was quick to recommend Eva DuVernay's documentary, 13th, and her recent Netflix series, When They See Us. So for those of you who haven't watched those, Maybe keep them in mind when you're scrolling through next time. That's it for this episode of America Unfiltered. Be sure to subscribe to us on all your favorite podcast platforms. And please head over to ucdclinton.ie to subscribe to our newsletter, to keep up to date on what we get up to at the Clinton Institute, and to read the latest commentary from our experts on happenings across the Atlantic. I'm Liam Kennedy. Goodbye from Dublin. Dublin.